Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, the good news is it's uh, temperature's gone up two degrees since six o'clock this morning, so it's only 16 right now. So I figured I'd start out with some good news. All right, let's have a word of prayer, then we'll then we'll begin. All right. Father, we thank you again for the day, thankful for the, uh, even the weather. Lord, we know all of it is, is controlled and governed by you. We're thankful for giving us the desire to come today, to be with your people, to worship you. Thank you for the class and, and the material that we're going to look at today, Father. Although it is rather academic, it is important to, to understand, to know that um, the canon that we have, the Bible that we have, is truly your word, that we can trust it and we can know that there, there's nothing missing, Father, that it is complete. We thank you for the men who came before us, who helped establish this, who were faithful uh, to defend the scripture, to defend the canon, and to use it wisely and powerfully. And we pray that we would do the same, we'd have that same trust in it that they did, and use it to the same effect that they used it, Father, to defend the faith, uh, to build up your people, and to glorify Christ. We thank you for this in uh, his presence precious name. Amen. Are any questions or comments about last week's lesson? Again, it was kind of academic. Any questions or anything? Okay. Uh, what we'll do, we'll spend a little bit of time reviewing and then jump into what we call models of canonicity. And last week, we looked at uh, the definitions of canonicity. What do we mean by uh, the canon? And we, we came up with uh, sort of three definitions that work together. Um, if we look at this right here, this is the right one, right? Yeah. But we start off with the exclusive definition of canon. There was um, basically, it looks at a time when the canon was actually finalized, when the church agreed that this is what we call the canon, this is our Bible that God has given us. And we really don't know when that happened. Uh, the, the festal letter of uh, 13, uh, 367 was a letter written by Athanasius, and it's the first actual list where we have all of the books of the Bible. The list before this, there were books added, there were books missing, but a lot of times we mark it as this is the date. It's a good reference point. Uh, it wasn't a letter saying everybody agrees to this. It was just a letter from a famous church uh, bishop saying this is what I think the letter uh, the books are. So the exclusive canon is that time when the church agreed, whenever it was, that we have a canon. This is our actual canon. So again, there was no canon before this until a final closed list of books. Uh, so there, we have another example here. And then we saw what the... Um, the question is, and what, what happened during this period before the canon was actually closed? Did we have scriptures at this time? Did we have a canon at this time? Was the church running around uh, helpless, waiting for the church to decide, yes, give us a canon, give us a, a list of books that we can use to defend the faith? Did they spend 300 years just kind of in the wilderness waiting for a canon? And we found out that they really didn't that there are other definitions of canon that we can look at. Uh, one, one is the, the functional definition of canon, which took place from the writing of the first book until whenever the church signed a letter saying, yes, this is the actual scripture. And the idea of a functional canon 
is the idea that a group of books that function as religious norm, regardless of whether they are part of an open or closed canon. Uh, we can use the word canon to be employed as books that are regarded as scripture by the Christian community. So before there was an official declaration or a complete agreement on what is the canon, there could have been books that functioned to the church as canon that they used to actually defend the faith and to, to edify and the people and preach the gospel with. So that would have been during this time right here, this functional definition. And, that, and it doesn't answer all the questions. There's still the question, well, what about books that were used for a while and not used? Or books that maybe weren't a part of that, that time period? And then we look at what's called the ontological canon. And that is the question, when does a book become canon, officially a part of the canon? And from God's perspective, it's when that book was actually written. So the ontological canon means that as soon as Paul finished writing 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, those books became, in God's mind, part of the canon. Then it was simply a function of the church recognizing it and then accepting it into the overall canon. And we came up with this sort of the way these things work together. Where if God gives a canonical book to the church, it's ontological then we should expect the church to recognize it as such and use it as an authoritative norm, which would be the functional definition. And if a canonical book is a book used as an authoritative norm, we might naturally expect that the church would eventually reach a consensus on the boundaries of defining what books are and are not canonical. That would be the exclusive use of the canon. And one thing I wanted to point out last week, and I, I want to review this again, when we're talking about this period uh, where there's no exclusive canon, where there's still questions about what book is and what book isn't part of the canon, most of the books were there. We, we looked at the, uh, these are the, the different uh, biblical canons that we have, uh, and we looked at the Moratorian Fragment. This was written 170 AD, and it's a list of the books that some author thought were part of the canon. And if you look at what's a part of that canon, it's almost all the books that we have. The books that are missing, he doesn't mention, he doesn't say these aren't part of the canon, he just doesn't mention them. He doesn't mention Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. He adds two Apocrypha books, the Apocalypse of Peter and the Book of Wisdom, and he recommends the Shepherd of Hermes. So we have a canon here as early as 170 AD where almost all of the books of the Bible were there. And so it's not like they're running around with half a canon or a third of a canon. They've got almost all of it there, and this is just one section of the church. There could have been other collections that had more. But again, just four books that are missing from this list, uh, two that are added, and one that is recommended. And then as we go further in time to the other, these other canons here, it becomes even more solidified, where these, um, the books that are apocryphal, or the books that aren't canon, are for example, these are the six books that were considered uh, to be part of the canon by different lists. And they really weren't mentioned that much. Uh, first and Clement was mentioned in the first and Clement was mentioned in the Alexandrius list. Shepherd of Hermes and Thistle of Barnabas was mentioned in Sinaiticus. And Apocalypse of Peter and Book of Wisdom was mentioned in the Mortarian Fragment. So these books they just appear once or twice, and they only appear once. So it's not like all the, they, there was a consensus about these extra canonical books. They appear a couple times, and then that's it. They just disappear. So again, my point here is that during this time where the, the uh, canon is vague or it's not rightly defined, we still had about 90% of the canon there that people, that the church could use. And we saw that they did actually use it. 
Remember, we looked at different controversies. We, we saw the, uh, the questions of Gnosticism and um, Marcionism, uh, the early battles fought over the deity of Christ and Arian controversy were, were fought before the canon was finally finalized. So the church wasn't sitting around waiting. Okay? When are we going to have a canon so we can go out and fight the battles that the Lord's given us to fight? They used what they had, and they used it very, very well. And they didn't run around wondering, well, where's the rest of it? No, they had what they had, and they used it. So uh, just to comfort us that there wasn't a time where the church just wrung their hands waiting for a canon. They had one, and they used it well. Now, what we're going to look at next are different models of canonicity. And there's two of those. There's the intrinsic model and the intrinsic. And the question here is, what motivated the church to create a canon? Why did they create a canon? They had an Old Testament 39 books of the Old Testament, what moved them to make another canon and, or to add to the canon? Because the Jew, you know, they, they look at it like us. Adding to the canon is a very, very serious thing. And if you're going to do it, you better have a very good reason to do it. So what motivated the church to do this? Was it something extrinsic to the church that was forced upon them, or was it something that arose naturally from the church itself? So the intrinsic model of canonicity claims that the idea of a canon was forced upon the early church by ecclesiastical authorities. Early Christianity had no intrinsic need for a canon, but it was an ecclesiastical or a product of the church uh, meant to meet ecclesiastical needs. It denies the very existence of a canon. The canon was not a natural development from within early Christianity. And the story goes in, in various different, different forms that the church was just happy. It had the spiritual gifts. It had the Old Testament. They had prophets. They had apostles. And they were going along just fine. And then a, a group of people arose, usually a, a patriarchy or something like that arose, and they wanted to impose their will upon the church. They wanted to, to wrangle the church in and direct it in there uh, in whatever way they wanted it to go. And so what they did was they came up with a canon. They came up with a bunch of documents that promoted their viewpoint or their ideas, and they imposed that upon the church, and that's how the canon came to be. If the church was left to itself, it would have never, ever developed a canon. And that's the view held by, by most secular scholars, that this is the idea of a canon being forced upon the church. So that, that's what we call the intrinsic model. The second model, which we're going to defend, is the intrinsic model of canonicity. And this holds that the formation of the canon was an organic, innate movement that came from within the church itself and not something opposed upon her in an attempt to conform her to outside principles and powers. So there was something within the church, their theology, uh, their viewpoints, their understanding uh, of Judaism that, that drove them naturally create a canon. Didn't have to have a council and say, well, do we want a canon? Let's vote on whether or not we should have a canon. It, it just grew organically out of the church, this canon, this, this scriptures that we possess. Any questions or comments about that? One, uh, uh, I mean, Brevard Child says this, a canon consciousness, that the idea of it's just part of the church's mindset, uh, thus arose at the inception of the Christian church and lies deep within the New Testament literature itself. There's an organic continuity and historical process of development of the development of an established canon of sacred writings from the earliest stages of the New Testament to the final canonical stabilization of its scope. So this man is saying here that it's just something that, that grew out of the church naturally. Didn't need to be imposed upon it. There was a natural desire, a natural instinct to 
produce a canon that the church, it was unconscious, basically. They didn't have to think about it. It just grew out of it, like a, a flower grows from a seed. Now, so what are the arguments that we can use to show that the intrinsic nature of that this intrinsic model is correct. And the first is what we call the eschatological nature of the early church. Yeah. And what this teaches is that the Jews, when we talk about, anybody here ever hear of Second Temple Judaism? It's kind of an academic term. But what we mean is that when, when the Jews came back from exile, from uh, Babylon, and they rebuilt the temple, and there's all these promises in Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that they're going to come back into the land, and when that happens, God is going to restore the kingdom, uh, promote the Jews, destroy the enemies, and the, the final eschaton is going to happen. All the promises are going to be fulfilled. That's what they expected to happen when he went into captivity. You can read all in Isaiah. We'll see some of that today uh, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that they're going to come back and God is going to establish his kingdom, destroy the enemies. The Messiah is going to bring in that glorious kingdom of peace and everything will be finished. And they came back and they built the temple and it was nothing like the original temple, nothing like the, not only the original, but the one in Ezekiel that's described. And so there, there was a, a sense of, of hopelessness. And what arose out of that is what we call Second Temple Judaism. It completely changed the perspective of the Jews when they came back into the land and the promises weren't fulfilled. And it's not unbiblical, it's biblical, but they had to change their idea of when these promises were going to be fulfilled. Not when they got back, but sometime later it was going to happen. And... In this sense, this idea of Judaism, there was a very strong sense of anticipation and longing for God to fulfill his promises to his redemptive people. It didn't happen when we came back, but it's still going to happen. God is still going to fulfill his promises to us. And we see this, they got this from places like Isaiah chapter 40, where... Um, Verses 1 through 11, he, he calls this messenger uh, to clear a path for the Lord's arrival. Uh, they're to raise the valleys. They're, they're to scrape the mountains flat. Uh, they're to smooth over the ground, to straighten the roads, to, to broaden the rugged terrain. And, and why are they doing this? Well, because the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. In other words, prepare a path, uh, scrape the ground clean, and smooth it so that the Lord can come and reveal his glory. He tells them then to get up on a high mountain and proclaim uh, the good news of the gospel. He says, say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God, behold, he will come with might, with an arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him. Like a shepherd, he will lead his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in the fold of his robe. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. We have passages like uh, Jeremiah 30, 31 through 40, uh, th these great passages about God making a new covenant with the people of Israel. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So there's the idea of a, a new covenant to God 
God is going to make with the people. Ezekiel 36 says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, remove your, remove your, the stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes. So the Jews had this sense that this was still going to happen. Didn't happen when we came back, but God is still going to fulfill these promises to us. This idea was seen in the intertestamental Jewish literature at that time before the closing of the Old Testament to the writing of the New. We have a number of books that the Jews wrote during that time, and we still see this this expectation of God fulfilling his promises to us. Uh, Second Maccabees says this, it is God who has saved his people and has restored to all of them their inheritance, the kingdom, the priesthood, and the sacred rights as he promised through the law. For we hope in God that he will soon have mercy on us and gather us together from everywhere under the heavens to his holy place. For he has rescued us from great perils and purified the place. So the fact that God has brought us here uh, is just simply a sign that something greater is going to happen, that the final uh, eschaton is going to take place where God finally and truly and completely saves us. Uh, Another book, uh, Barak chapter 3 says, uh, "Do, do not remember the wicked deeds of our ancestors, but remember at this time your power and your name, for you are the Lord our God, and you, Lord, we will praise. This is why you put into our hearts the fear of you, that we may call upon your name and praise you in our exile. So they saw themselves still in an exile. When we have removed from our hearts all the wickedness of our ancestors who have sinned against you, see today we are in exile where you have scattered us, an object of reproach and cursing and punishment for all the wicked deeds of our ancestors who withdrew from the Lord our God. So they see themselves in a, an area of disobedience. They're still paying for the, the, the sins of their ancestors, for their disobedience. And they're asking God to come back, to take us out of this exile and deliver us. Again, we could read a dozens more passages like this, uh, where the Jews in this intertestamental period express a hope. There's a sorrow that what was promised hasn't happened, but there's a hope that it will happen. And this was sort of the, the backdrop of this second temple Judaism. That was the frame of mind that they had, that God still was going to give his promises to his people. Again, it was this deep, profound expectation, this longing uh, for the time when God would return and fulfill his promises to Israel. Now, the question is, did the Jews of the first century, before Christ came, did they have that same hope? Was that same desire there? And it was. That sliver of time in the New Testament when when Christ is born and a time of his ministry, uh, we only have a few chapters of the Bible that ex- explain that time to us. But there's a lot of information that shows that this is what those Jews hope for. Uh, Luke 3, tw- uh, 238, uh, Anna the prophetess says, when she saw the baby Jesus, she says that she, being given th- she began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So the Jews at this time, 
this writer indicates that there were a, a number of people, including this prophetess, Anna, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I remember Andrew, when he realized who Jesus was in John 140, it says he reported back to his brother, Simon Peter, and said what? I found the Messiah. That tells you that there was an expectation there. They were looking for something and waiting for something. He was waiting for the Messiah, and when he found it, he ran back to his brother to tell him he has actually found the Messiah. Uh, the woman at the well uh, in John 4, the Samaritan, not even a Jew, but a Samaritan says that I know the Messiah is coming. He who was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So even the Samaritans had an expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And when he did, he, he would make th these divisions between the Samaritans and the Jews. He would explain things so that we understand properly. Luke chapter 2, we were introduced uh, not long after, or I think before uh, Anna, we were introduced to Simon. He says that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was uh, Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here's another man uh, that, that's waiting for this deliverance. It's called beautifully the consolation of Israel. There's this expectation in this man's heart. And then when, when he sees the baby Jesus, when he's handed to him, uh, he takes him and he offers a blessing. He says this, now, Lord, you are letting your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen what? In this little baby, what did he see? Your salvation. This is the salvation of your people which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So here's another man who has this great expectation that yet the Messiah will come. God is going to bring salvation to us. So we see this, this little window again between the birth of Christ and his public ministry, this longing uh, for God's promises being expressed. And that's this element of the, what we call the second temple Judaism, a desire uh, to see God fulfill his promises. Now, this framework was shared by the early church as well, uh, but with one major exception. What was that exception? They believed that Jesus was the one who was fulfilling this, that he had come to bring these promises to the people of Israel. For them, Israel redemption had reached its climax. The long-promised kingdom of God had arrived in the work and the person of Christ. Uh, Matthew or Mark, we see this in the early ministry of Jesus. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. These are the words of Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that kingdom that you are hoping for, that you are longing for, that you desire above all things that you thought would happen when you came back into the land, centuries ago that kingdom is here now repent and believe and come under its submission its authority uh, wonderful passage Luke uh, 4 16 through 30 we'll, we'll look at this real quick here Luke 4 uh, 16 through 30 we won't read the whole thing but just sort of just run through it to see what's happening here with this second temple Judaism framework in mind So Jesus, it's early, early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, he's been tempted in the previous chapter, actually this chapter here. Uh, he goes out from that temptation, and it's sort of summarized here. But he goes out and begins his ministry, and he's healing, he's preaching, he's teaching, and, and word of, of his power 
uh, has spread throughout all of this area, all of Galilee and Judea. So the same man who's been healing all these people, casting out all these demons, now goes to teach in a temple or in a synagogue. And it says this, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on a Sabbath and stood up to read. And he took the book of the prophet Isaiah, that was handed him, and he opened a book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now this is a quote, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 61. And this is probably the, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament pointing to this time of deliverance when God is going to deliver his people from their enemies. He's going to uh, gather those who are scattered, still in exile. He's going to remove the yoke of the Gentiles that are still upon them and crushing them and bring in his kingdom and deliver his people. And when we see passages like this quoted in the, Old, in the New Testament where they're referring to Old Testament passages, they're not necessarily using them as we would use a proof text, where they've got something they're trying to prove, and so they're going to use this text to convince you that it's right. What these passages do is they're sort of conduits that, that take ideas and theology from the Old Testament and bring them to the front and put them in front of you, saying what Isaiah spoke about. That, that deliverance of this kingdom, this deliverance of the captives, this great time of the spirit. Uh, this is what I'm putting before you. This is what I want you to think at, what I want to be in the forefront of your mind. So he reads this passage, would have immediately brought to their minds this great deliverance that God is going to bring about to his people, this long-expected salvation. And then he says this, it's, or the text says this, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Notice the drama here. He folds it up hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down and he looks out, and every eye is focused on him. What is he going to say about this? What is this man who, who's performed the, these unheard of miracles? What does he have to say about this passage? And what does Christ say? It's happening. These words that were spoken hundreds of years ago are happening. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what did that tell the Jews listening, the second temple Jews listening, that it's here, that the kingdom is coming, that God is getting ready to act, that at the time of Isaiah, chapter 40, when he's going to come and reveal his power and gather up his ewes and his lambs and his arms, when he's going to bring his reward and recompense with him uh, to judge uh, God's enemies and deliver his people. And even I think of Isaiah 40. I mean, every gospel starts with that passage. Here's the messenger that's coming. What is he coming? He's coming to prepare the way of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, as was spoken of in Isaiah 40. So the early church clearly saw the ministry of Jesus as beginning this process of the kingdom coming, this long-waited expectation. Not only this, we see it in many other places in Christ's ministry. We see it as well in the writings of the apostles. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10.10. Now these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And that phrase there, end of the ages, would have indicated to those readers that this is the time. Everything's going to be done. 
This is the end of the age, that final age that God has brought about where he's going to basically clean everything up and deliver his people and establish his kingdom. That age is coming to an end. It's almost here. Paul in Galatians 3.14 says that um, he saw this present age as the time of the spirit and the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham. He takes that, that phrase in um, Genesis where it says that God will bless those who uh, curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you. Uh, he takes that, that blessing there as the God actually blessing the nations with the Messiah, that Christ coming to save the nations. And he sees that as the Spirit is the one who is the fulfillment of that promise. Remember, the Spirit came to the Jews, then as the gospel spread out, that, God, that same Spirit came and embraced the Gentiles as well. That was the big debate in the book of Acts. Have the Gentiles been included in the family of God, into the people of God? And what was the answer? Yes, why? How do we know? Because the Gentiles received the Spirit the same way the Jews did. Therefore, we have to embrace them and bring them into the arms of the church. And, and Paul saw the current age as evidence of that by the fact that the Spirit had come and he had come to the Gentiles. He says, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hebrews 1-2, in the last days God has spoken to us in his Son. Again, the last days. Yeah, the Son, he, he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So the idea of the last days being here is an indication that this eschatological promise is being fulfilled. Uh, we see it in an interesting way in what's called the, uh, the recapitulation of Moses by Jesus. We, we, the Jews had a, a high regard for Moses and what Moses did. Moses basically established for God the Old Covenant. And so he was held in high esteem. And as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus doing many of the same things that Moses did. Now, what does that say? Well, he is bringing in this new, better covenant. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus recapitulates the original Exodus by going down into Egypt and returning uh, from there back to Palestine in Matthew 2, 24 through 15. Remember that, that strange passage where when uh, Herod goes to kill the youths, and Jesus flees with his family and goes to uh, Egypt and comes back. And there's this strange phrase from Hosea chapter 11, 1, that, uh, that basically that um, this is the fulfillment of, that pro of this pro uh, prophecy that uh, I will return from Egypt. Well, what they were seeing there was a recapitulation of Moses going down and bringing the people out of Egypt. Uh, there's some uh, clear examples. For example, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus do there? Well, he reiterates the law. He explains the law to them. And where does it happen? On a mountain. Where did Moses receive the law? On a mountain. Another example, uh, he's a prophet greater than Moses. Uh, Luke 4, uh, 24, 19, and Acts 3, 23 through 23. Uh, there's a promise of a, a prophet greater than Moses coming to the people of Israel. And the point is you better listen to him if what happened to Moses when you disobeyed him was bad. Think of what's going to happen when you disobey this prophet. Well, well, Peter in Acts 3 says, this is Jesus. He's the, the, pro, the prophet promised in Deuteronomy that would be greater than Moses himself. Uh, Moses provided what for the people of Israel when they were hungry? Manna. What does Jesus provide? Manna from heaven. 
manna that doesn't give you physical life, but gives you eternal life. Um, he speaks of the glory, remember, in, in um, the transfiguration. I've always, was always puzzled what the significance of the transformation was. You know, Jesus goes up uh, to this mountain with, with some of the disciples, like three of the disciples. Uh, this thing happens where he becomes glowing. He glows. And the thing that, that's interesting there is that Moses and Elijah are there, the two of the supreme prophets of the Old Testament, and Jesus is glowing, not just his face, but his clothes glow. And they're on a mountain. Now, what does that remind you of in the Old Testament? Remember when Moses in Exodus 33 went up to the mountain to receive the law and to come down to teach the people? What happened to him? He was in the presence of God and his face glowed. And he came down to teach the people and, and the, the glowing was so great, the radiance was so great that the people said, no, c cover your face. We, we can't bear to look at this image of your face. And so Moses put a veil over his face and taught. He went back up again, came back down, had that same glow, that same uh, glory emanating from his face, covered himself, went back and forth, back and forth. Well, the transfiguration is just a recapitulation, or the, uh, yeah, transfiguration is simply a recapitulation of that event, showing that Christ is basically the second Moses, but a greater Moses. Moses' face glowed, but it says Christ himself glowed and his clothes also shone with the glory that was there. And he was teaching and talking to Elisha and Moses himself. So Jesus on a mountain and face glowing, clothes glowing, all this is a recapitulation of Moses' work in a greater sense. And we kind of look at that and say, well, you know, that, that's not logical. That doesn't make sense. But to the Jew, that would have been a very, very powerful thing. The way that their minds worked, that would have been a very powerful uh, argument that he's imitating what Christ has done in a greater sense, in a greater way. And Hebrews uses this same argument as well. He looks at all the stuff Moses did and said, yeah, but you know, Moses, he, he cleansed a, a temporary house, a house made of, of elements, material, where Christ, he, he cleansed the heavenly temple. So there's this, this elevation of Moses, of Christ over Moses, showing not just the greatness of the person, but the greatness of the work and ultimately the greatness of the covenant that they established. Any questions or comments about that? Again, we've just looked at a small sample of these passages. There are dozens that we could look at that show this very clearly. So we see that the intertestamental Jews, or what we call Second Temple Judaism, believed God was going to intercede and bring about the long-expected redemption of his people. The Jews, in that small window of time in the New Testament between the birth of Jesus and his public ministry, we see had that very same expectation. We can go into the, uh, the, uh, uh, the words of, of Zechariah and Mary and see that same exact expectation in their words as well. Jesus himself saw him as himself as performing this work, uh, as clearly expressed in his early ministry. Uh, the early church is expressed in the writings of the Gospels and the Apostles that they as well saw Jesus as having accomplished this work of bringing in the kingdom of God. He has brought about the long-awaited redemption, not only of Israel, but the promised redemption of the Gentiles. The gospel that Paul preached uh, that brought about the gospel that Paul preached, he ends the book of Romans this way, was a gospel that didn't just 
ministered to the Jews, but brought the Gentiles into the fold as well. He says, as according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. Paul boasts uh, in the work of Christ how he, he's brought the Gentiles in. He's, the gospel has been successful in the fact that he says, far from Jerusalem, as far about at, to Laconia, I've ministered and brought the Gentiles into the fold of God. Now, so the question then, we're convinced of this, right? There's not much here. We pro guys probably heard this in different form and believed it, so I'm not trying to convince you of something new, but what does this have to do with the canon? Any ideas? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, again, the question, how does this theological framework about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament promises to Israel affect the development of the New Testament canon? Any ideas how, how it's going to apply? Well, pardon? Hebrew 1 where it talks about speaking by prophets now speaks by son. Yeah, but that, that's still, I mean, prophets could have just, why write it down? Why create documents that teach about this and, and, and lay it out explicitly? The prophets, the, the people with the explicit are, um, um, what is it? The, I, I forgot the name of it. The, um, yeah, explicit view of uh, the canon would say, yeah, the prophets were fine. The, the church could have survived with prophets for centuries without having to write a canon. So, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But what, how does this, this theological framework that they have lend to the fact that they wrote it? That's what we're trying to, to show. First covenant was written down, so you expect the second. Exactly, yeah. We'll see more of that next week, but you're exactly right. The covenants were written down. They were recorded. And not just covenants, but redemptive activity. When new forms of redemption came, when the progress of redemption increased and developed, what did the church do? What did the Israelites do? They wrote it down. There was documents to follow that new information, that new we could call it data in, in a strict sense. So um, again, Second Temple Jews regarded the Old Testament story as incomplete. Okay, it, it needed a, a proper terminus, a proper ending. Um, if the founding members of early church held this same view, would it not have been natural that they think, in the light of Jesus' work, that a proper conclusion to the Old Testament would need to be written? And we would say yes. If they're following the same pattern as the Second Temple Jews did, we would say, yeah, there does need to be something recorded about these events for not just us, but for future generations. Remember, a few weeks ago, we spoke about the order of the Jewish canon, how helpful that it was. And remember, what book does the Jewish Old Testament end with? Chronicles, right? Now, what would we say Chronicles was? Chronicles was a book written by Second Temple Jews who saw that the people came back from the land, saw that the promises weren't fulfilled, and had to write to the Jews to encourage them, no, they're still going to happen, just not the way we expected. And so it, it lays that out. And so it was written to encourage the Jews to wait, to wait for God to fulfill his promises. And remember, the, the major part of Chronicles is what? What is the first nine chapters of Chronicles? Genealogies to establish the fact that we still can trace the, the line of David to this very day. And that was encouraging to them because that, that line still needed to be there if the promises were going to come. They were coming through lines. And so Dave, David's line had to be there. So that's how the Old Testament ends, that 
God's going to still fulfill his promises. The Davidic line is still there, even though there's not a Davidic king. We still know who these people are. So God has that channel to bring the blessings to the people of God. How does the New Testament start? Who is the writer of the New Testament or the first book? Matthew. Matthew was a second temple Jew. Again, you have to realize, and it's one thing that I, I have a love-hate relationship with N.T. Wright. I hate some of the things he holds to, but I love some of the ways he's framed my way of thinking, and that is when you think of the early church, don't think of them as Christians. Think of them as Second Temple Jews, that same mindset. So when they, I lost my train of thought here. But when Matthew wrote as a Second Temple Jew, he was showing that these promises now are coming into fulfillment through Christ. What does Matthew start with? A genealogy. Where does that genealogy start? Where does it end? It starts and ends with David. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's starts with David. So again, that the Davidic line is still in effect and that Christ now, he adds to that line, is a part of that line. So the promises are coming to David. And that would have demanded new documents to explain this redemption, what God is doing. Not that they had to reason about it. It would have been a natural outflow of the theology of the church. And also, I think this is what you indicated too, that, that the Old Testament indicates when God brings new revelation uh, after he acts to redeem his people. So when, when new revel revelatory acts occur, uh, there's going to be revelation to explain and preserve those facts. There's a, a tight connection between God's major redemptive acts and new installments of revelation, again, to document and to explain those acts. Uh, consider the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the timeline. We have the creation of uh, creation to the call of Adam. It's about 2,000, or the call of uh, Abraham. That's about 2,000 years. We have 11 chapters devoted to that time period. Um, we have Abraham to exile, 125 years. We have from chapter 12 to 50, we have almost over 30 chapters devoted to that time frame where all that revelation occurs. So we have re redemption uh, growing. We have it uh, becoming more detailed, and there's revelation there to document that. So again, 125 years, we have a massive amount of documents to record that for us. Uh, we go to the Exodus, another major historical act, redemptive act. How many chapters are devoted to that time period? Just that basically 100, 134 years when you consider the exodus to the entrance into the promised land and the conquest of the promised land. It's about 134 years. We have six or seven large, massive books devoted to that time period. So when redemption occurs, revelation occurs. Documents are produced to record and explain that revelation. Now that we have the new covenant, the greatest revelation ever. I mean, nothing compares to what happened in the new covenant. Nothing. We would expect revelation. We would expect documents to explain that in an authoritative, uh, clear, concise um, way. So that completely destroys. It's one of the things we're going to look at that completely destroys this extrinsic model of the canon. The church would have instinctively one of these documents recorded and written down for the people of God. It wouldn't have had to have counsel. It would have just naturally had to happen. Any questions or comments? Okay.
either you understood it or, but anyway, I hope it's helpful. Uh, again, this is stuff that you don't normally get in a candidacy class. So uh, um, if I'm boring you, just let me know and we'll, uh, we'll change gears. I know there's a lot less people here than last week, but that may be just because of the weather. But anyway. Thanks for your attention. Any questions or comments, just uh, feel free to come up and, and talk. And we'll, well, again, this is just one. There's two more that we'll look at next week. So uh, let, let's go ahead and pray and then be dismissed. Our Father, we're thankful for, the, again, the reminders uh, of the great work uh, that Jesus did, that, that expectation uh, that the church had, and, and the great joy that they experienced when they realized what had happened. And we desire that that, that same joy, that same expectation uh, be in our hearts, Father. And although we're studying an academic uh, lesson, uh, we still can have that desire, that expectation, that joy, that, that the promises are fulfilled, uh, they're being fulfilled in us, that we are, are those Gentiles uh, that have been brought into the church, and we can rejoice and thank you uh, for what you've done in Christ, and that you've given us a scripture to, to clearly explain it. It's not just a, a document of facts, but it is a powerful instrument uh, to transform us, uh, to teach us, to instruct us to edify us and, and to uh, form us more and more into the image of our blessed Savior. So we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the spirit that inhabits it and that inhabits us and changes us through that word that you've given us, Father. So we thank you and ask you to bless us today. In Christ's name, amen.